you, you can holler, you can applaud, you can scream, you can do anything you want. I can't hear you anyway. <laughs> Welcome to Salt Lake Dirt. I'm your host, Kyler Bingham. Today on the show, I welcome author Sam Quinones. Sam is someone I've been wanting to have on the show for a while now, so I was thrilled to be able to actually sit down and chat with him. His new book, The Least of Us, is out in paperback as of last month. I first heard about Sam when his book Dreamland, well, Dreamland had been out for a while. Mark Marin was raving about the book. Uh, Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. And it, it really helped spark the awareness of what was going on um, in the in the U.S. with um, the thousands of lives affected by this uh, scourge, really. His new book, The Least of Us, um, awesome, incredible nonfiction read. Highly, highly recommend it. We talk uh, quite a bit about it in this episode, but I just want to read some of the bio to give you a better idea of what exactly this book is about. Bio says, in The Least of Us, Quinones chronicles the emergence of a drug trafficking world, producing massive supplies of synthetic drugs, it's fentanyl and meth, cheaper and deadlier than ever, marketing to the population of addicts created by the nation's opioid epidemic. As a backdrop to tales of Americans' quiet attempts to recover community through simple acts of helping the vulnerable. With the least of us, Quinones broke the story of how the methamphetamine now produced in Mexico has covered the U.S. and is creating widespread and rapid onset symptoms of schizophrenia, becoming in the process a major driver in the country's homeless problem. Very important stuff. Incredible writer. This was this was the best talking to Sam. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and I hope you pick up um, his books. I know you'll learn a lot. They are, they are so readable and important. Thanks for listening. Are you, are you traveling right now, or are you... No, no, I'm at, I'm at home. We're living in Nashville for, for a bit, so I'm at home right now. Okay. Um, well, yeah, so we're, we're mainly here to talk about um, the book that came out last year, recently in paperback now, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Um, man, well, so I, you know, I'm a big fan of Dreamland and this book. I think the problem I have, I end up like highlighting everything. <laughs> so it's like, it's like I should just highlight nothing. It's all marked up. And I'm like, where, I do, know. I, where do I even start? But that is like the sign of an incredible nonfiction book. Um, and I learned so much from this book in particular right. stuff that just, you know, I had no idea, but it all clicks. Like I see it in my neighborhood, my, some friends that, you know, kind of lost their mind in their mid thirties and we had no idea what's going on. They're on the yeah. street. Um, all this kind of just, uh, makes sense. So I don't want to. Um, maybe we could just like tell our listeners what exactly I'm talking about. What is the book? Uh, Dreamland is the precursor to this. And um, yeah, I'm just absolutely blown away by the book. The book was the, the least of us was my attempt to update the opioid story. I wrote about 
in, in Dreamland, I wrote about um, the uh, what is now known as the opioid epidemic, the origins of that, and how it all and 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 really the story is about um, doctors that were pushed or pressured by drug companies and other institutions and in medicine to begin using um, and prescribing very heavily um, narcotic painkillers, opioid painkillers for all manner of things that they never did before. And, um, and a lot of doctors went along with that eagerly and a lot of doctors went along very begrudgingly, but most did, many did. And, um, and then that created a whole new population of opioid addicted consumers who then many of which eventually, long story short, switched to heroin. And it, this ignited really the interest of the trafficking world down in Mexico, which is very sophisticated and very large and very robust kind of ecosystem of drug traffickers and people who work in that. And as the book came out, as Dreamland came out, I really was a, didn't want to write another book. But uh, there, people began inviting me to come speak all over the country. And when that happened, um, I began to see kind of almost in real time the emergence of a new stage in all what I just written about. And that really involved now the Mexican trafficking world taking the taking over, you know, telling him, you know, we'll take from take it from here to the pharma companies and, and which were now under great scrutiny and lawsuits and all that. A lot of it, I think, frankly, due to the awareness that that Dreamland kind of ignited. Um, and 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 so the, the 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 drug trafficking world in Mexico kind of steps in, and and they have evolved now away from plant-based drugs and towards synthetic drugs. And there are many reasons why they do that, and it all benefits them. This is not about responding to demand with supply. It's about supply creating demand. Right. And, and the, the reason that they do that is because synthetic drugs make so much business sense. If you're a trafficker, you don't need land or, or sunlight or rain or any of that kind of stuff. You, you, you just need shipping ports through which you can get all of your chemicals from the different countries of the world that have chemical companies. And that's many. And so it, it and, and so the main ones now that they have really, um, you know, uh, produced in just staggering, staggering quantities are fentanyl, uh, which is getting most of the headlines due to how deadly it is, and and methamphetamine, which is I think largely what you were referring to, right? Uh, which is accompanied by um, now the way they're making it now in Mexico with a just so so potent and and pure. Um, the, is really being accompanied. It's now really being accompanied by a very rapid onset symptoms of schizophrenia, paranoia, delusions. Very quickly, you lose control of your life and your house. Very home quickly, you're homeless, uh, screaming at demons, unable to really control yourself, your life, and also unwilling to to stop using. I mean, it's a remarkable effect that these drugs, in in, in the quantities and potency that they have, have really pushed people just simply not you know, just never want to leave the dope, you know? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I live in, um, right out of downtown Salt Lake city and, you know, we noticed especially, and it's nationwide, it sounds like right during the pandemic, um, the unhoused situation just exploded. Uh, I've never seen anything like it here, just, you know, encampments everywhere. 
And I think like reading the book now that I, when I drive around and I see people like I, you know, you don't know hundred percent what's going on, but you see these tricked out weird bicycles that are like, they're, they're not there. It's like an obsessive nature has yeah. latched onto this thing. And that's what one of the things you mentioned in the book that was so fascinating to me, just kind of like the, the schizophrenic uh, symptoms uh, obsessive, like fix, like repairing things, taking it apart, like over and over and over again. And bicycles like, are really a, 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 a kind of integral part of the the meth psychosis um, because for a few reasons. One, number one, bicycles are very handy because no one's got a car anymore. No one's got a driver's license anymore in that world, right? Mm. So you can use them to move around. On. Plus. They're not the bicycle theft is not taken very seriously by police who frequently have many other things that they have to deal with. And that is really way down the priority list. And 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 then, of course, bicycles are also perfect if you're if you're stuck, which is the term in that world, meaning you just get into a, a, a rut of just doing one thing for hours and hours. And so it's fixing a fixing a TV or fixing a stereo or fixing fixing a bicycle is definitely one of those. And then there's also bicycles are easily traded for dope. And so what you get is this bike bicycle ecosystem that revolves around methamphetamine and is very intensely seen nowadays with the meth that's so potent coming out of, out of Mexico. And um, I haven't been to Salt Lake recently, but I have been to other towns where exactly you see what look to be like bicycle stores in, right. in, a, in a, as part of a tent. As part of it, you know, there's un, and and it's remarkable to me how many tents seem to have if they don't have like a full blown bicycle store with you know stacks of frames and wheels. At least they have like four or five of these things, you know, and 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 everyone's got their their little bicycle cadavers, you know, uh, uh, next to them, and 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 bicycles and and bicycles seem to be almost like like a. a emblem of this meth that's coming out of Mexico that is so potent and 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 seems to uh, um, just just dramatically alter people's mental states right so this is the 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 p2p method um, right that, that I have never I had never heard about it until reading the book and just what was so startling like you you've already mentioned how quickly the, the, the people lose control uh you know typically you know i would see people who it was like a process of becoming addicted and, and like they'd start losing things one by one and with this it's just like it can happen it happens very it seems yeah. to happen very quickly in many in many many cases pete the p2p method of making methamphetamine is actually it's new to the Mexican trafficking world relatively these last 10 years or so, but it's not a new way of making methamphetamine. The early um, Hells Angels, the biker gangs that early on in the story of methamphetamine in this country controlled and made methamphetamine. They use that method. The problem is that um, it, 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 it's complicated. It stinks. Um, it, it, it's, it's easy to, it, you, you need a lot more, you need a lot of chemicals to make it work. There really is, and so that's that's why, like the Hell's Angels, they would they would cook out in the desert mm-hmm. or in the pines somewhere because they didn't. I mean, it, the, the smell was rank, and 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 they would very easily, you know, a, alert people in the area, like what's that smell, you know? So they would make it somewhere else. The 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 thing that 
and all that remains true about the P2P method. The P, P, it's called the P2P method because the main precursor in making this in this method of making methamphetamine is a chemical known as phenol 2 propanone, common industrial chemical, um, and everyone calls it P2P. Um, and the thing about it, though, is that it benefits traffickers in Mexico is that, first of all, they have control of law enforcement, so they don't really care how much it stinks. But the main thing is that you can make P2P many different ways with a variety of different combinations of widely available industrial, cheap industrial, toxic, by the way, uh, chemicals. And what that means is um, a couple of things. One, the government cannot crack down on the precursor the way they did with the previous precursor that really uh, tied the hands of traffickers when it came to methamphetamine. They had to move to, to this P2P method because they really couldn't get this 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 chem, this uh, precursor chemical um, that they were using. And so, when you when you do that, the, the government cannot crack down because as soon as you it cracks down on this one method of making P2P, there's a couple dozen at least other methods that you can make P2P. And so it, it just People move to another one. So you can never really crack down. And then also you've got a lot of these ingredients that are very easily obtainable through these shipping ports. Mm -hmm. And and this method of making meth uh, methamphetamine has allowed them not just not just to, you know, it's 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 creating this these symptoms, but it's also the amazing thing is it's just allowing them because they can get all these ingredients, it's allowing them to make quantities that are just staggering. They just cover the country. And not only they cover the country with methamphetamine, the, the price in many areas has dropped like mm -hmm. 70, 80 percent. Yeah. What was so like like surprising mm -hmm. to me was in, in this book how uh, w with the meth and with the fentanyl, it was, it was, addicts were um, – were selling this like they were they they were easily able to get large quantities of this where that was not the case because they wouldn't be trusted with a large amount right. of of, yeah. of stuff so uh and then and then the the shipping from from china how that was just coming into in the mail uh right. it, that was yeah. that was i mean i think that was fentanyl they they would sell fentanyl through the mail early on the chinese um, the, that's the thing though, about these synthetic drugs, they're made in such quantities because you can get control, you have control of the ports in Mexico and you can get these ingredients in, in daily, you know, shipping containers that are just enormous quantities. And what that means is that you can produce these, these quantities that really change everything. That's the thing. The synthetic drugs change almost everything about the drug world, profit manufacturer who sells it drug treatment, drug addiction, on and on. I mean, just like there's nothing the same. And one of them is the thing that you point out, which is for a lot of years, no common ordinary street addict would ever be fronted large amounts of dope because you knew that that person was not trustworthy. That person would never pay you back. And you might front them a pill or two, but you're certainly not going to front them a, an ounce or a pound or a kilo, goodness gracious, never. And now what you are finding, I began to see this over and over in these cases where these people would be arrested and they would have like five kilos or so. I mean, just ridiculous amounts. These people were in no way prepared to be drug traffickers or drug dealers of a, of a, of a major, major level. 
And and yet 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 they were fronted that much. And and you talk to the narcotics agents, and they would all say the same thing. We've never seen. We know this guy for years. And there's never been reliable, but now he's got these quantities that are. And that's just simply a function of how much stuff is being produced out of out of Mexico. It just has to do with supply. Unreal. Um, w- one last thing I wanted to talk about with like the, this kind of specific stuff. The uh, one thing that always confused me. Like okay, so for example, one of my one of my favorite musicians, Justin Towns Earl, um, like the yeah, so you're familiar with died the, of the, uh, yeah. died of uh, overdose overdose so fentanyl so he um you keep hearing about fentanyl being in cocaine so that was just something I I didn't understand until I sure. read the book and was like this was this accidental and then you really kind of opened my eyes so maybe you could speak to that a bit because it does seem like that is happening quite a bit and i think that's another function of fentanyl fentanyl is so potent that what's happened is and it's so cheap and so much so much of it is made that it is being used kind of as a drug booster you could boost your heroin at first it was heroin and then quickly after that it was coke and then after that meth and now it's you see it dusted onto 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 fentanyl i'm onto marijuana i'm sorry uh on some occasions and so um, what ends up happening first, first, there's 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 a debate. And I, I believe um, um, one of the two is correct. But there's this debate saying, well, um, there's a uh, you know, why does this happen? It happens because people are sloppy when they're mixing it. And I definitely believe that was the case early on in fentanyl's arrival in the United States. that people did not know what they were doing. They were using, again, the magic bullet blender. Um, and mixing it poorly and all this kind of stuff because fentanyl you can't sell logistically it's so potent that only a few grains worth of like equivalent of a few grains of salt will get you high a couple more will kill you and so at that point you have to really in order to sell on the street you have to mix it with something else well these guys aren't bad at mixing they don't know what they're doing and, and for a long time as I write in the book the magic bullet blender was like this this was the, that was the myth that it was a really great idea to mix your fentanyl with a magic bullet blender. <laughs> well, that was a perfectly awful way of, of mixing your fentanyl, turns out. Bad, bad mixes. But also there was this idea that these guys don't know what they're doing and they're just like kind of sloppily. They have a pile of this, a pile of that, and they're mixing it. And and I believe that happened before, but I don't believe that's really what's going on now. I believe what's going on now, there's several years now this. And and it's it continues to be the case that cocaine. I wouldn't trust a line of cocaine in America today to not have fentanyl in it. And I think it's largely because people want to, uh, you know, create from a cocaine user a customer who is now a fentanyl addict. Meaning you got to buy every day mm-hmm. and in significant quantities every single day. So it's a customer expansion tool in a sense. Um, that's my my feeling very strongly because because it's just been going on too long. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't make any sense. And also it makes it makes a lot of business sense if you're a trafficker to do it that way. You might kill a few people, but um cost of doing business seems like. Wow. Um I think the the one thing I, I love your writing and I would like to talk about kind of the process of um sure. maybe your journalism background. So you, you the way you weave the stories like just it just seamlessly clearly like a lot of like for like thought and 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 um and work it's it's a it 
is just so readable, you know, with a nonfiction book with some of this information that I knew nothing about that's very, um, you know, dense to someone who's not familiar with any of this. You put it in a way that anyone can understand it. And it's very, very fascinating. So um, and then one, another thing, like just the, the hope that is weaved throughout it, but the realistic hope, not like a feel good kind of thing. It's like this is a really like overwhelming, horrible situation, but there's, you touch on the hope. So, okay. I threw a lot at you, but maybe just the, your, uh, your process of writing, um, sure. your books. And then, and then I would love to hear, but I don't really know about your background, how you got into yeah, this. I've been a reporter for 35 years. Um, I was, you know, my parents were both very book oriented. We didn't have a lot of uh, consumer items around the, the house, except for books. My dad was a literature professor. My mother was an elementary school teacher, and both of them, um, you know, were very. And, and my my, I remember my dad when I was when he 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 taught at a a, a, um, a college in in Claremont, California, in Southern California. Uh, Claremont at the time it was men's college. It became Claremont McKenna College. When we were driving out from the East Coast um, to get that job, I was four, and my dad. Uh, kept me entertained, me and my my brother. Uh, my brother's too young, but I was four, so I could understand. My he, he kept me entertained by telling me the stories of Odysseus, uh, you know, from Homer and the Greek mm -hmm. Greek myths and stuff like that. And and you know, it's a wonderful thing to be introduced to storytelling with these vivid, vivid stories of the Cyclops and the Sirens, beeswax and Odysseus's ears and all. I just I would I was as addicted as anybody would be to a soap opera to the stories of Odysseus driving out for several days out to Southern California. And so um, I, uh, um, but I, I would say that um, I, I ended up being a reporter, um, not because I studied, I didn't study it. I, I just kind of got into it because I thought it'd be something I, I, I enjoyed. I was lucky early on to have some excellent editors mm -hmm. and, um, read have read one book that is really the only book on writing that I think is good uh, or that, that I mean the only one that you need to write mm -hmm. uh, there are many that are good but um, this one's called On Writing Well by William Zinser and he has all the answers in the first six or eight eight chapters of his book and you don't need to what you do need to do is write like hell for a lot a lot of years you don't need a ton of books. Mm -hmm. He can tell you most of what you need to know, I think. Anyway, on writing well, you can get it on Amazon for a dollar a piece because on writing well has been um, uh, assigned to classes all across America for 40 years. You know, I have my version still from 1980, I think it is. Anyway, um, I went, I, I worked at the Orange County Register briefly in Orange County, California. Then I had a, a great, great job uh, covering crime in Stockton, California. That really changed my journalistic career and i became a kind of full-time crime reporter i lived down in mexico for 10 years also uh, wrote down there as a freelance writer writing about immigration political change uh wrote two books my, my first two books i wrote about mexico then i came back and i wrote uh, for a job at the la times in 2004 and um and through through my work at the la times i came upon this whole story of the opioid epidemic the dreamland book grew from a lot of the some of the stuff anyway not uh, about half the stuff in the in the book on dreamland kind of was kind of rooted in stuff that i had done for the la times and and but along the way i've always very very much been interested in telling in storytelling how you tell stories 
and 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 the idea that you have to storytelling the fuel the fuel of storytelling is detail so that means repeat numerous interviews with the same person finding out deeper and deeper versions of that person's life say and it's also about making good choices and so you get all these details and then you don't use them a lot of them you still but you still dig for them all and 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 also i kind of with dreamland um i i all the chapters are very small because i had early on in uh decided this the story had several threads four or five threads uh storylines basically like in a you know like in a in a tv serial and and i had i had numerous books about heroin uh that i bought or got from the library or whatever and i saw that all of them none of them none of them were well read nobody had read these books mm-hmm. you know and and why well i thought to myself look the chapters are all 30 pages long that's one of them reasons right and so i began to think why do i watch the wire why do i watch breaking bad why do i watch the, the movie heat with al pacino and robert de niro like 12 times it's because you have all these stories going at the same time so i planned dreamland to be kind of like a blockbuster movie or tv show but in book book version so all the chapters yeah. you know you'd have one chapter and then that that story would take up at four chapters later and that kind of thing but all of that you can only do that if you spend a ton of time distilling finding the details and you find these many many ways but mostly it's with interviewing people and 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 over and over and over you don't do it once mm-hmm. a two hour one hour at one hour interview is just the just just getting started Mo- many people if they're important to the book it's like nine ten hours something like that wow and so that kind of like it seems like you travel quite a bit for the work and then people have you speak um yes i, I forget i saw i think i heard you speak about I forget I forget when or what it was regarding to, but just the amount of like speaking engagements you did in a in a year, um, insane. Like <laughs> you're on the well, road what all the time. Was yeah that that grew though from this feeling when I was writing Dreamland, I was overwhelmed by the feeling that nobody wanted to talk about this. Mm-hmm. It was really like a dreadful silence. People who had loved ones, particulars about families who had loved ones who were addicted to these drugs, either the painkillers or heroin or both, whatever. And so I thought to myself, well, I'm going to finish this book and go on to something else because nobody, clearly nobody wants to talk about this. And so it's an enormous surprise around our house when, when the book comes out, all of a sudden, more and more people start reading it and then binge reading it. By the way, I want to stop there and say... I did not know if the if the short chapter thing would work. I just mm-hmm. knew that the long chapter thing wasn't going to work. You know, t- treating it like like The Wire or Breaking Bad, or ch- so so you're moving it along. You know, and I remember about a month into after the book was released, I got an email from a guy named Jim, a father, a young father, or at least he had a t- uh, an infant, and he told me I binge read your book, <laughs> and I walked around that day. Hi, myself. I was like, yes, <laughs> yes. You know, that was what I was looking for. I was looking for someone who would, you know, and people would, after that, it didn't stop. People would say, oh, I, I read your book in two days, or I'm yeah. reading your book for the third time. 
right? Or, you know, that kind of thing. And it was just that made me feel like that hunch that I had actually was was a correct. But what happened was, as time went on, I began to see all these people coming out of the shadows. All these families didn't want to talk about it for a long time. Now they're coming out of the shadows. And now you're seeing a political movement, what I believe to be one of the great grassroots political movements of our time, which is people moving out of the shadows and being willing to talk about it, pushing for action, pushing for new budget priorities, pushing politicians to get involved, pushing the media. And all of that began to happen after Dreamland. And so when people began to call me or email me and say, would you like to come speak to our town in Ohio or our professional conference in Las Vegas or whatever? I was like, hell yeah. You know, I mean, because I did not think any of that was going to happen. I really did not. And and then at a certain point, it became this amazing experience that I'll never forget, you know, we're all... I'm meeting people, hugging people. People are telling me how the book changed their lives. And and so as time went on, I just said, I mean, I can't say no right. to this because this may not happen ever again. You know, I wrote two books that I'm very, very proud of, but nobody read. Mm-hmm. So I know what it's like to have a book that nobody read, right? Yeah. So, you know, so when you get a book that everybody, including, you know, people wanted, I, I was, I testified before the U.S. Senate, I spoke to uh, conventions of like hundreds and hundreds of of surgeons and people who matter, you know, and and who can and 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 uh, addiction counselors also amazing and cops. I mean, it was just a remarkable experience. Um, over and I think I yeah I think I did two hundred in sixty five speeches in a five year period. Wow! Right. And that was simply though because you know I was just like terrified that this would never happen again, understanding that the book was such a powerful force too. And it kind of, I was telling my wife, it's kind of like the book, like, you know, when you let a raise a child and then the child goes off and, and has his or her own life. That's the way dreamland was to me. It took off. And I didn't, it was almost like I didn't have anything to do with it anymore. It was just, was like on its own traveling out there in the country. You know what I mean? So anyway, that's why I did so many of those. But it had a, there were reasons for that. That's so cool. I so I I first heard about it. I want to say probably because the book came out in 2015, uh, I believe. And so 2016 or 17, I was in uh, Pasadena at yeah. I forget what the comedy club down there that that club that's been around forever. But I was outside after the show. Mark Marin was there, and there yeah. was a s- small circle. So I was just kind of standing near that that group t- talking. And he was going like he was like you have to read this book you have to read Dreamland uh-huh. so there's a, so there is and then I went back and listened to the interview that the first interview you did uh, so that's where I that's where I came upon it so I think it's so cool that so many people from different walks of life yeah. are like you need to read this book and so from that you know word of mouth and then I'm a high school teacher right I've told I've told everybody that I can you need to read Sam's books. Uh-huh. Um, in, incredible. So, and then I, I did want to talk about, I don't have a copy of this, but I, I do want to talk about it and I want to get a copy, but there's a young adult version, a YA right. version of Dreamland. Yeah. I'd love to hear about how that, uh, came about yeah. and w- w- what's going on with that. Well, uh, first of all, let me say a, a, a big, big, big thanks to Mark Marin. Yeah. The guy has been nothing but supportive and, um, and I've done now two interviews with them. I did one for the least of us as well. 
uh, sweetheart of a guy, um, very thoughtful questions. Amazing. He does so many of those interviews and yet his questions are remarkably thoughtful. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought, of course, we're both kind of amped up personalities. (laughs) So it was almost like we were both on speed when we were talking, you know, (laughs) I Um, I listened to it. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. No, it was like, you know, uh, amazing, uh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful guy. I, I liked the fact too, I have to say that, you know, I spoke, I, I did Mark Maron's um, podcast. I also did uh, the the uh, variety show that was uh, hosted by Mike Huckabee, you know, Ann Coulter. Um, I did KPFK, which is kind of a far left da- um, uh, radio station, and and um, and I think Berkeley and 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 KPFA in in LA and all that kind of stuff. All of these. I, what what the amazing thing about the book was that they, it it really crossed political boundaries remarkably. And that was an amazing thing for me to, you know, the governor of of, of Kentucky, Matt, Matt Bevins, a, a very decent man, um, I thought, very, very conservative fella. Um, he took it up as his own personal cause, you know, it was just a remarkable thing. And it was just like right, left, center, it did not matter. The YA book, the young adult book of Dream, the version of Dreamland was all a made possible be, or or we did it because it was um uh, i was getting parents and teachers on the road asking me if there was such a thing because mm-hmm. for some of the kids it was just not possible to read the dreamland book it's too dense and so i'm like okay yeah sure and and then the, the the bloomsbury folks wanted it as well and so it was basically produced that way it was not um I didn't have a ton to do with it. I think somebody else, somebody else edited it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just the idea uh, then was that we just need to get some version, an abridged version out for for kids. In fact, I just had a meeting an hour before this with um, um, uh, students from uh, high schools in uh, in a small town of Virginia. Uh, we're going to go and speak in a, in, a, in a couple of months, and they're reading that that version of the book. Oh, that's incredible! That's great. Yeah. Um, I, I did find a very interesting um, a comment. I think it's near the end of the of the least of us about um, like drug, like the legislature, like um, basically legalizing drugs. You know, yeah. and that's always, that's always always yeah. been a back and forth. Um, and 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 you made I forget the words exactly, but just like you know, maybe not a bad idea, but American capitalism would doesn't allow for up. it. Right, so yes. I would I would love to hear um, just kind of the, those so- thoughts because it, it make that makes so much sense to me. It's like yes, of course, this is like, you know, with 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 marijuana, it's legalized in so many states, but it, it's so potent. There's like this, it's and, they, not and, and what we it have was. not. And marijuana is a perfect example that I'm talking about. It, it stands to reason that if we're going to um, legalize marijuana, we would not legalize forty percent THC marijuana that's not marijuana that's that's a plant that's been mutated hybridized over and over and over by underground botanists to then transform it into this hyperpotent stuff mm-hmm. and and um and, and uh, i think my point was that i don't think we have the culture the commercial mercantile culture legal culture too uh in this country to say no to big moneyed interests. Mm -hmm. And one of the proofs of that, in my opinion, is that you see these um, laws being enacted that allow a weed 
which grows perfectly well in the sun, to be grown indoors in a time of climate change. The carbon footprint of one bud is just mm. ridiculous. I mean, you need you need to keep that bud going for four months. You need you need um, uh, 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 electricity uh, all twenty four hours a day. Plus, you need light sixteen hours a day. You need all these things pushing uh, uh, the airflow and everything, and 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 all these pesticides. All of this because people make more money with more potent pot and it's easier to grow more potent pot in indoors. To me, that is a complete abdication of any value, moral value in the, in, in uh, towards the power of marijuana growers. And they, mm-hmm. they, they have not nearly the power they're going to have in, fi- in 15 years. Right. You know, we just haven't been unable to say, that doesn't make any sense, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and nor does selling pot that's forty percent THC. We, you know, when we legal when we re-legalized when we legalized and, and regulated alcohol, we did not legalize for commercial sale all the hooch mm-hmm. and all the the junk that people have been making their bathtubs and all that kind of stuff that drove people nuts and, 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 and jittery and blind and all that kind of stuff. We said, no, we're going to regulate this. We're going to make sure we, we inspect it, you know, all this kind of stuff. And we're going to regulate a potency too. And, and it just seems to me like we never learned anything. And, and, and that part of it is because we still think that marijuana is what it was when it, you know, 40 years ago. And it's clearly, clearly not. Clearly not. In part, this is because, too, we do not have a federal law. I believe this all of this would go away if we had Mm -hmm. one federal law saying maximum 10 percent, no indoor growing, none, zero. All the tax money goes to build infrastructure for inspecting pot plants, inspecting pot stores, inspecting uh, all that kind of stuff. If it's a food we should inspect it the way other food factories are inspected. If it's a medicine, like other medis- me- drugs are, are 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 manufactured, you know, all of that. It's like we don't have the ability in this country to say no to some capitalist who sees his profit tied up in in stuff that is actually irresponsible, and that's kind of what's happening with marijuana right now. Right. So I think it says you say in the book, it's just a matter of time before Big Pot is that's what we're dealing with. Oh, I think we're getting there pronto really quickly, you know, and and there's no reason that 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 this hyperpotent pot should be sold. It seems to me it just just doesn't make any uh, any and what's and and especially I just cannot believe the carbon footprint of marijuana is is mighty. It's huge, you know. And and so in the middle of climate change, which is an existential threat, we're going to we're going to bend over for these guys. I just can't. It drives me nuts. Yeah. No, it's it's a it, it is like there's no there's no limit to like how much money can we make just reading yeah. uh, about Purdue right. and the Sacklers. And, you know, you touch there. That's weaved throughout this book as, as well. Um, and it was just, yeah, just the if they can make more money, they'll do whatever they can. It's it's so. And that's the, that's the thing about money that struck me with 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 the uh, with the Sacklers and, and that I wrote about in the least of us. Um, you know what happened was after the book came, after Dreamland came out, 
I published that book and there were three lawsuits against drug companies at the time. One of the one of the things that ha- began to happen as the Dreamland book spread was you began to see all these uh, lawsuits now ex- just expanding geometrically, like 3,000 within a few years when there had been three, right? right. When, I, when I published the book. And so, okay, great. Um, so I, um, uh, uh, what, but what happens as part of that's crucial in all this was that among those lawsuits were criminal suits brought by attorneys general in the different 50 states plus D.C. And they came with subpoena power and they came with very inve- uh, experienced investigators and prosecutors, and they were able to dislodge all these new records. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because as they did so, they began to fill in the narrative that I, as a lowly independent, poorly funded freelance writer, never, ever would have had access to and never would have been able to procure. They got it. And and they began to put together these narratives. And one of the things, if you read the Massachusetts Attorney General Attorney General uh, complaint against the Sackler family, it's up on the Massachusetts Attorney General website, 277 pages. You come to this realization that all addiction is kind of the same. You know, you cannot get enough. So the Sackler family, even in years when they were getting hundreds of millions of dollars from the company that they own, Purdue Pharma, they were still upset that they were not making more money. You know, it was just... (laughs) In 2010, I believe it was, they were funneled $889 million from the sale of OxyContin almost entirely from Purdue Pharma. And those sale, and they were still upset. There were still emails about, we missed this goal. We need to do better doing this. And I'm like, $889 million, how much more do you need to be satisfied? Well, the point is, well, addiction to anything is that you're never satisfied. You always need more. Once is, you know, not enough, you know? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's, um, uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is, it, it all like just kind of opened my eyes to the, the level of, uh, addiction. Like when, when you talk about, um, fast food and, and sugar and like the, yeah. the, the, maybe the, the chicken nugget, not that I'm eating chicken nuggets every day, but, uh, I had no idea about about like it was created at Cornell, Um, and and then what was like just like I'm like I'm never eating a chicken nugget again. Yeah, no, Uh, I feel the same way, and 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 I think that that was that was part of something I kind of had toyed about doing with Dreamland, but at the end of Dreamland, I just didn't have enough brain space to do it. Was right about the 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 toxic soup of addictive stuff that we now live in, in our lifetimes, I'm 63, going to be 64 in a week. I I mean, I know, I remember a time when a lot of this stuff was never advertised on TV. And of course, a lot of the stuff never existed, social media, video games, I mean, years ago. So what we are being bombarded with is just a ton of toxic stuff, sugar, you know, fast food, pornography, gambling, etc. The latest things are these damn gambling apps on every sports show mm-hmm. that you see. Every sporting event has like all these athletes hawking gambling apps that are highly addictive. I think it's just outrageous, man. It just drives me nuts. But I wanted to talk about that in the in, in you get this continuum, right? You start there and you keep going, and pretty soon you get out and you get the Sinaloa drug cartel. Mm-hmm. They're all trying to mess with our brain chemistry and prod us to obey the impulses to, for reward 
and desires and cravings and, and all that kind of stuff. And I did not think I wanted to write about drug traffickers without writing about gambling and pornography and video games and sugar right. and, and, and how, you know, all the, everybody fights to make their, their product easy, easy, easy for you to, to use like, like sodas in a grocery store, that kind of thing. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. Fascinating. And um, one thing I remember, I do remember, I forget what fast food um, company, uh, but you, t you you talk about them and like how the logos haven't changed yeah. uh, or they're very similar to what they've always been. Uh, it's recognizable. The anticipation of getting the thing is is just making the brain chemistry you know what? It's wild. very much like when I was doing Dreamland, the, the, the part of it, as you know, is the, the, these guys who sell, sell heroin like pizza delivery, right? So you call right. and they deliver to whatever... I don't know, whatever target parking lot you need to be you're nearby. But people would always tell me when I was making the phone call, I could begin to see, feel like this tingling, like anticipation, you know, this kind of thing. And that's really what fast food's going after too. They're there, they put these logo, they put the logos, they never change the logos, and they put their their restaurants all over in front in every interstate off ramp and every major intersection because it's like that ease of buying to, to ease of obeying your these these cravings well that's what drug traffickers are doing too yeah you know it's just illegal in that case and legal in the other yeah they the same they use the same tactics it's a yeah it's, oh yeah yeah and unreal. if you get down into it you can hear you can see how they're very similar and also how how those products all hit the same receptors that in our brains that that you know heroin and other drugs of abuse do. Yeah, I just was thinking of some of the commercials. I don't know if they still put those on, but those those Carl's Jr. commercials yeah. with like the like the hot supermodels like eating <laughs> Carl's Jr. or the right. one you you mentioned it in the book. I think I don't know if it was Taco Bell or what, but I remember that where the the guy is like wandering. It's yes. like oh my god, this is like. A drug addict, like wandering he looks the like streets. A zombie. <laughs> what he really looks like, if you if you write about methamphetamine, is a is a late night meth user who's up all night wandering the streets, kind of out of his mind. And and exactly, exactly. I mean, there's so, so many connections in the if, if, if you can make it once you begin to dig into those the the mass marketing of this stuff, the the, the language. This will trigger all your cravings. And I think in the book I said, a drug addict knows that triggers and cravings are not good things. These are torments. This is what this is what torments your life forever is the the, the urge, the impulse to go go get stuff, right. and and that's what you try need to control if you want to be drug free, if you want to recover from drug addiction. Yeah, it's weaved throughout the book, but I I love especially. Um the the last chunk of it like the chapter that is called the least of us uh that chapter especially really r resonated and and just you know hearing the the stories of people who you know ha have been able to pull out of it because this is yeah. this seems like that's not super common but people are able to do that i think about the guy sure. who opened up the he's i forget what town it is but he's really helping the community he opened up that crossfit gym uh, yeah. But but he has, I, I believe it like um, written or posted on the wall like nobody is coming or something. Nobody's going to Dale King. 
Dale King in Portsmouth, Ohio. Right. That 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 was my return to Portsmouth, which was a major part of the Dreamland book. That's Portsmouth is where the Dreamland swimming pool, where I took the title of the book. And and Portsmouth is is a perfect example of of what's going on that I think more people need to understand. It's not it is not that they are solving all their problems. It is not some like the, you know, uh, a Hallmark card movie or something like that. It is not that. It is simply that little by little, the small steps, steps, the least kinds of steps forward are being taken. People are taking them. They're finding each other. They're not looking for magic answers to problems of economic devastation, Rust Belt phenomenon, uh, the hollowing out of a town, people moving away and, 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 and all that. Rather, they are coming together in the smallest little ways to create these connections that have been shredded for years, you know, in this town. And, and through that, creating small solutions that daily work, the daily work, the, the not worrying that you're not saving the world in some magic, you know, noble, virtuous way. They are simply moving towards a little bit better so uh, uh, tomorrow through coming together with people who are sick of, for example, with CrossFit, people in that town are sick of being the county that leads Ohio and obesity and and a bunch of other bad barometers, you know. And, and and so working out, getting together to work out, that's a very, very healthy thing. There's now two cafes in that town, open air cafes. They they since that swimming pool, Dreamland swimming pool, closed. And I'll leave your your listeners to read the book to understand how important that swimming pool was and all that. But since that 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 swimming pool closed, they had really no place in town where people could see each other outside except for Walmart and maybe the Friday night football games. So now you got these two cafes, which are, you know, my barometer of how effervescent a, a, a small town is, mm-hmm. economy is, is how many independent cafes, not the not the Starbucks at the interstate, the ones that are downtown where people come to know each other. And, and, and there, there's two of those. So all of a sudden, that's a new thing, you know, and all of a sudden you're seeing some of these old buildings that the that the town never destroyed. Um, brick buildings being renovated into something new. That's something new. So you get these little things. And and to me, that was that's where we need to be as a country. We got away from it. We have these ideas. Well, if it's not solving the problem, then we right. don't want to try it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that's to me, that's that is very counterproductive. That's very um um anti-american in some way you know americans all have always been about just doing it mm-hmm. you know and again dale's motto nobody's coming it's just up to us man i love that guy that guy had some very very profound stuff to say and and his actions not just to say but his actions seem right. to me along with other guys down other people in that town were also extraordinarily profound and what they said about how america returns comes back from a lot of this stuff that's been bothering us and bedeviling us for so long. Yeah. I mean, incredible. Just like uh, what, what hit me and just like, it, it was very encouraging, uh, you know, cause I see stuff at the high school where, where I teach just like across, you know, um, like everywhere it's like this but just like the like the showing up the small things the doing the consistency one yes. guy i think uh 
midway in the book, I forget where, but he talks about like, I think he, he slipped up. He, um, started using again and they're like, what, you know, what happened? He's like, I stopped making my bed. And that, that was, I, I love that. You know, I mean, I, it just was like, so thanks for pointing that out, man. That, I'm really so happy you did. That is exactly the point that that's how recovery happens. Economic recovery, community recovery, addiction recovery. It's the small stuff. You take care of the small stuff, the meeting of, of pe- like minds, people who are, who are in, you know, heading the right, the, the same direction. And all of a sudden you, you, you reactivate all that energy that maybe had been, misspent or lying dormant or whatever now that they comes together and all of a sudden solutions present themselves that never were presenting themselves before yeah so it's just uh, like manageable doable hard work yes. but but i mean and then you know with with the pandemic you you, you bring it up how like just the in our face about how much we we do need community we need each other to you know survive and i think this this book it, it, it's it's realistic, it's um, extremely informative, but it, it gives hope, um, and I think it just is. It should be required reading. This is your Thank dreamland, you. and this is just incredible. Um, and I'm so happy you're willing to still talk about it because you probably have ta- you've talked about it so much. Yeah, but um, see, here's the thing, man. Um, podcasts offer podcasts and Zoom offer amazing new opportunities for writers to connect with readers used to be not that long ago. The only opportunity you had to have this kind of conversation at length was Terry gross, fresh air, right? That's it. Now there's (laughs) thousands, you know, and each with a different niche, Mm -hmm. regional, professional, whatever it is, it's a different, different niche. And it's not five minutes or seven minutes. It's, 45 minutes, it's an hour. You can elaborate on ideas. You can talk about details that that never would come up, like the idea that that the way you you make sure you stay in your recovery is you do the small stuff. You make your bed every day. You don't let it all kind of slough off, you know. Um, and and so and Zoom is also that's why I do um when people when book groups read my book, I I'm very eager to do um for free, you know. Um, a Q&A with whatever book group it is, because never in the history of writing has, you know, Shakespeare, Faulkner and Mark Twain, nobody had the ability that we have right now as writers to connect with readers all over the place. And and I would be crazy, just insane as a writer, <laughs> not to take up these opportunities like this one with you and book groups, uh, you know, in some rural town in Illinois or something like that. You know, it's just, you have so many opportunities to talk to people now. Um, and that is the beauty of technology. There's a lot of downsides to technology, but from a writer's perspective, it, it opens you up to all these new possibilities and new contacts with readers that you never had before. No, it's, it's so true. I mean, the one of the reasons I'd, I'd had the, the website going for a long time, Salt Lake Dirt, but I started the podcast during the pandemic because before I was like, oh, that's all we need is one more podcast. But a big part of it was, you know, talking to people I respect and admire. And now 
I've grown this community. We're on the radio in Santa Cruz. Um, there you go. It's been so cool. So people like minded, and then you turn people on to new ideas. Very punk rock, man. I was uh, <laughs> years ago in my in my uh, college days. I uh, promoted uh, punk punk rock concerts, and this was in the late seventy, early eighties, late seventies, early eighties. I just love punk rock because, and it's very much like what I was talking about with Dale King. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the there were a lot of problems with punk rock. A lot of people got ground up in that in that scene. I think because of drugs. But a, but the most powerful idea was, um, you know, just a kind of a DIY ethos: do it yourself, and and don't wait for people to give you permission mm-hmm. to do it. And and I think that is um, kind of the pro- podcasters' ethos. And very important and all that. But also it's it's like what's going on in Portsmouth, Ohio that I wrote about in The Least of Us, right? It's like people right. just saying, we're going to step out here. We're going to do our thing and and we're going to break away from, you know, we're not going to wait for people to say, I don't know if that's going to work or not, you know, and that kind of thing. No, just do it. And 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 it's like the someday someday-ism kind of like this idea sure. that's so toxic, <laughs> like someday I might do that. No, no, no. No, yeah. do it right now and don't worry if you don't do it well because you'll get better at it, mm-hmm. you know? And and that's that is a very American idea and that's the idea that I kind of inculcated when I was really in my punk rock days and I've tried to kind of continue that um ever since and it sounds like podcasts like in your case absolutely the same thing. Yeah, and it's been, you know, so fulfilling. So, um, that I get to talk to people like you. I I'm so excited. Um, I think we're we're about up at our hour, but man, this was I've been wanting to have you on and I this has been great. I've, you know, I love I love your work. Thank you. Uh, I've learned a lot from this conversation and I know other people will as well. So, um, yeah, Sam, thank you so much for being on the show. This is going to be on Monday. It'll air on Great, Monday. Man, Tyler, I so appreciate the interest. As I say, I take these things very seriously. I'm, I greatly enjoy talking about this stuff, and I'm I'm just uh, 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 so happy that that people like you are out there kind of like interested in ideas, interested in in presenting them and stuff. And so thanks very much for the uh, the opportunity to do so. Absolutely. Yeah, this, this is the highlight of my day. So thanks for, thanks for taking the time, it, Sam. Okay, take care. You too. Thank you.